Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as always. And John, we we like to crow about the victories that we have on the program, uh, but occasionally we have to tell viewers about results that we're less enamored of. <laughs> and, <laughs> Nicely and I've, got, put. I've got one of those to share with uh, uh, with our audience uh, today. And uh, this case is out of the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Tenth Circuit, which covers that portion of Colorado where our radio audience resides. Uh, so there may be a particular uh, interest in this result uh, there. But uh, uh, the case is Ranchers Cattlemen Action Legal Fund United Stock Growers of America, also known as RCAF USA. Tracy Hunt and the MW Cattle Company, LLC. Donna Hunt doing business as the MW Cattle Company, LLC. Kenny Fox and Roxy Fox as the uh, plaintiff's appellants against the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, although otherwise known as APHIS, and the uh, Secretary of Agriculture, which at the time that this uh, case was originally brought was uh, Sonny Perdue in the, in the Trump administration, uh, and against the head of APHIS. And what uh, what this case started off as, John, you'll remember, we've talked about on this program before, and our colleague Harriet Hageman, who has sat in for uh, for us occasionally, has talked about this case and argued it in the Tenth Circuit, in fact. Uh, the case had to do with whether or not the USDA could force uh, cattlemen to put radio frequency ID ear tags uh, on their cattle uh, and, and whether they could do that via a, a, a guidance because there had been a regulation during the Obama administration around 2013, if memory serves, and then the Trump administration tried to put out, and that and that guy, or that uh, regulation under the Obama administration was clear that you didn't have to to use the RFID ear tags. Well, then the Trump administration comes along, they put out this guidance that suggests you do have to use the RFID ear tags, and so the case was originally, especially in the district court, was about this this issue whether you can replace a uh, you know a, a statute. Uh, or excuse me, a regulation with a guidance? And, and the answer is clearly no, you can't do that. Uh, unfortunately, oddly, the federal district court didn't see it that way and, and did not rule in our favor. Uh, the District of Wyoming uh, did not rule in our favor on that. But I think that we were so overwhelmingly in the right about that, that the USDA saw the writing on the wall and decided that it was going to lose on appeal at the 10th Circuit. So it went ahead and and uh, and repealed the guidance on its own and said, yeah, we we're not going to try to we're not going to try to press forward with this guidance because, uh, you know, we we don't think that we that we need to. And we think the case should go away and there's nothing nothing to see here. Move along. That was basically USDA APHIS's position shortly after the federal district court ruled in its favor, which is maybe unusual for a for an agency to retreat after winning in district court. But I think that it knew that we had the stronger argument uh, and, w- w- and would have on appeal. So uh, 
then the question comes, well, why, then why did you appeal to the Tenth Circuit if you already got this result from, from USD and APHIS? And that's because there was another issue in the case, which is has to do with something called the Federal Advisory Committee Act, or FACA. And what we determined in our analysis of what had happened here, there were two different uh, federal advisory committees that USDA had, and our clients were on the, the cattle traceability uh, working group, and uh, or at least one of our clients was on the cattle uh, traceability uh, working group. And then uh, that group was disbanded because the USDA and, and those on the committee were unhappy with the results that it was generating because uh, our client uh, was one who wasn't in favor of RFID air tags. And so the, the CTWG wasn't, wasn't moving uh, in the direction that USDA wanted at the speed that USDA wanted it to move. So as I say, it, it disbanded the, the cattle traceability working group and set up a different group called the Producers Traceability Council, which essentially was the same group of people minus our client. Uh, and then the, the PTC went forward uh, and provided guidance to USDA about how to implement uh, an RFID ear tag program. Well, the problem is that under the Federal Advisory Committee Act, if, uh, if an advisory committee is either established or utilized by a federal agency like APHIS or USDA, then there are all kinds of requirements that you have to satisfy under the Federal Advisory Committee Act. And if you don't satisfy those requirements, then you can't be the beneficiary. The agency can't benefit from the uh, from the advisory committee. In other words, whatever regulation or what have you that it's working on, it can't use any materials or or input generated by the unlawful advisory committee uh, in order to uh, to do what it's doing. And that's essentially what we asked for from the Tenth Circuit. We we asked for it to tell uh, USDA and APHIS that it couldn't use any of the the work product from the Cattle Traceability Working Group or the Producer Traceability Council because they were federal advisory committees that were uh, uh, that were convened in violation of FACA. And, and the, the FACA violations here, by the way, John, are, are manifold, but they include things like not keeping minutes uh, of the meetings, not having, not, not doing this publicly the way that they were supposed to, uh, obviously kicking our client off of the earlier one uh, is a, is a, a violation of the requirement that there be uh, that the views of, of sort of all sides be represented on the advisory committee, uh, which even once our client was kicked off, the, the anti-RFID side was not represented on the producer traceability count, producers traceability council. So the, the question here is really uh, just whether or not uh, USDA established or utilized these, uh, these groups, because if there's no doubt that the groups violated FACA if they were advisory committees. The only question is, were they advisory committees? And I'm disappointed to report that the Tenth Circuit decided that uh, USDA and APHIS did not establish or utilize. And by the way, it's not an and. You don't have to show both. It's either one. If if you can show that that the federal agency either established or utilized uh, the the group, then it's a federal advisory a committee if certain other uh, aspects are met that were, that were not uh, in dispute in this in this instance. Uh, and as I say, the the Tenth Circuit didn't 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 think that. But what's really troubling to me, John, is in almost every case that I've that I've dealt with having to do with FACA, and I and you know Mark, our colleague uh, Richard Samp was involved in this 
litigation, once it became a FACA litigation, he wasn't so much involved at the district court level, but once it became clear that the case was going to focus on FACA on appeal, we brought Rich in because he's a real subject matter expert on FACA. And, you know, he's never seen a case like this either where uh, you weren't even allowed to get to discovery on the question. Typically with FACA cases, it's easy to survive the motion to dismiss and you get to discovery. And the discovery is when you can uh, you know, find those key emails or what have you that show the degree of involvement with, by the federal agency in establishing or utilizing uh, the, the committee. But because of what the federal district court of Wyoming did here, it, you know, it dismissed this case before discovery ever took place. And so there, what the 10th circuit says, John, is that there was nothing in the administrative record to support the claim that, that these two uh, committees were established or utilized by the defendants. And that's a, it's a bit of a catch 22. Now, now, first of all, I would, I would submit that there was evidence. We, we, through FOIA requests and through some other, uh, through some other, uh, just public information and, and information supplied to us by our client. I think that we actually did provide plenty of evidence to show that these committees were, uh, you know, were utilized and, and established, uh, by, by the government. But if that was in dispute at all, then I think that the appropriate thing for the district court to do would have been to go ahead and allow discovery, uh, because there's no doubt under the, under the meeting standards that, that we had plausibly alleged facts that if interpreted, uh, if construed as, as it's supposed to be done at the motion to dismiss stage, that if those facts alleged were construed, uh, you know, in, uh, in a way favorable to our client, then, then there's no doubt that, that the government established or utilized these. So it should have survived the motion to dismiss. It should have gotten to discovery. And then I think once, you got to discovery, there would have been ample evidence to show establishment or utilization. But we got caught in this catch-22 where the district court did not allow discovery. And then the Court of Appeals said, well, there's not enough in the administrative record to establish what it is that you claim. And then uh, two asides here, uh, John. First, this is the second time I've been in front of the Tenth Circuit at NCLA. <laughs> oh, here it comes. And it's the second time that the decision was written by former Chief Judge Mary Beck Briscoe who is from Kansas, my home state. And the other, it's the second time that a second judge on the panel was the other 10th Circuit judge from Kansas, Nancy Moritz, in both cases. And both times the court ruled against me. So I don't know if any of the senators from Kansas listen to this program, but Senator Jerry Moran, if you're listening, Senator Roger Marshall, if you are listening, please stop allowing the Democrats to have all of the 10th Circuit uh, judges from Kansas we would, you know, it would be useful to have a Republican appointee from Kansas on the Tenth Circuit, since you know Kansas is uh, a majority Republican state, as evidenced but, by both of you being the senators from that state. But, but uh, Mark, I, as I remember, Kansas's motto is "Ad astra per aspera," right? That, to the that stars is. through difficulties. To so the stars through these difficulties. These are your, these so, are our difficulties through Kansas. So, actually. so I'm, so I'm appealing to our our elected stars of Kansas, uh, Senator Moran and Senator Marshall. And asking that no, I, uh, you're, you're right. I think it's a, I think it's meant to be a religious appeal. So maybe I'll maybe I'll <laughs> say some prayers about who replaces uh, Judges Briscoe and Moritz. But in any event, there there is this uh, this decision. By the way, as 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 was true of Judge Briscoe's last decision, it does create a circuit split with another court about uh, another court of appeals about what established or utilized means. 
and we're going to take a close look at that. And we may we may yet file a, a petition for cert in the U.S. Supreme Court in this case, and and see if we can tee up this uh, this circuit split question for the Supreme Court to resolve on the meaning of established or utilized. Stay tuned for that, and we'll be back with more right after this. You know, last week's show was so filled with wins that Mark and I are uh, a, a little more at ease uh, noting uh, what we call um, uh, less, less advantageous orders. Suboptimal. Suboptimal. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was involved in a case uh, with Dean uh, Eunice, our colleague here, uh, Changizi versus Department of Health and Human Services, still am. But we, I think I did speak about we had gone out there for a hearing in this case against the Department of Health and Human Services and against um, the Surgeon General and a bunch of others, basically by saying that all of these bans on social media that are coming in over COVID are not because social media just wants to ban people. They have economic incentives and other incentives to get everybody on there who's not driving people off, off their servers, off their platforms. Um, and w- what we really saw is that once the administration changed and the administration wanted to stop people saying certain things about COVID and vaccines and all the rest of it, uh, these, these people who had been happily, uh, you know, tweeting away or, or Facebooking away or doing whatever they were doing, um, were suddenly tossed off these various mediums. And so we brought a case. Including the- medium. Yes, including medium. Uh, but they want to, um, so we had uh, Mark Changizi, Daniel Kotkin, Kotzen, excuse me, and Michael Sanger, who are, were all our plaintiffs in that case and are our plaintiffs in that case because uh, we'll, probably be, we'll probably be back again. But um, so we had a hearing and uh, we put on all our witnesses and, and then uh, Judge Sargas uh, out in the Southern District of Ohio uh, took in all the evidence and Back in early May, uh, he filed a opinion saying, well, I've seen what you said here. And, and we put in, we put in what the Surgeon General had said. We put in what Biden had said, what, what his spokesperson, Masaki, had said. All this stuff about how they were going to uh, demand accountability from the social media companies, demand accountability about this, that they'd sent off a demand for personal information. The Surgeon General had, had wants personal information of the people who are tweeting and twittering and all this. And um, so it was kind of outrageous. And then the government, HHS, and everyone else moves to dismiss. And they say two things. They say, well, even if all those guys say is true, it's not a case. And then they also say, and they don't have standing because they can't show they were hurt by this. And what they mean by we, that you're not hurt by this is that uh, well, you can't prove they didn't do that. Well, because we don't have a lot of statements from Twitter and Facebook and, and Medium and everybody else saying, no, we, we didn't do that. 
we did it just because we like kicking people off our uh, our platforms. So we did, the case was um, dismissed, not with prejudice. We have leave to replead. But it was kind of curious because we didn't sue Biden in our case. And earlier in this segment, in the previous segment, I was talking about how um, whether or not you sue the president, the president's in charge of everything. And so you might want to sue him in his official capacity, but certainly you would think his statements and the statements of his spokesperson could be ascribed against the agencies that he runs. Um, and the judge took well, a Whether or not you name him as a defendant. Whether or not. I mean, so uh, sure enough. Um, and I, I will say this as a practice point, Mark, I've always thought um, sometimes you want to sue the president, but it's a little bit grandstanding, right? You normally want to stop an agency from doing what the agency's doing. And um, certainly during the Trump era, people just loved suing Trump just because they loved to have that first name in there. Um, and uh, I, I, I mentioned one of our cases with Fauci, you know, we could have put in a no name, but so it always helps. It helps people remember the name. And I don't really have any problem with it, but um He's in charge of the whole government, and certainly what he and spokespersons say should be ascribed to the people doing the things they they just said they wanted them to do, right? Well, and when you sued Fauci, you were suing him over the Fauci ouchie, so I think it was uh, I think it was appropriate. Yeah, no, I don't disagree, but I I'm disagreeing, I guess, a little with this this the judge here, and that um, and he's an experienced guy. He's not he's not new to the uh, judgeship or anything, but he felt that. Uh, who we sued and what we were asking for were the big things. And he said, ah, I can't really tell here. I don't see that you can, from the fact pattern you allege, say that all these social media people did this because the government's bothering them. You know, it's equally likely that they did it just because that's the type of people they are. And well, then that's if that's a fact, if that's a factual issue, then we should have gotten discovery. It's like you said, you should be able to go and find out what the actual facts are. That's what it turns on. Um, but these are preliminary motions. And he decided that, um, uh, that Twitter, there's no reason to think that Twitter's not doing this on its own. Um, and he does, but he, but he did say, look, Saki says this. Then he says, I'm not going to take into account what the Saki says because she doesn't run the health department. Which is kind of odd, Mark. I don't. I can't really get my head around that. Uh, when you're the spokesman, right? So, so if it were the spokesman for the health department, he would take it into account. Yeah. And so then, nice. so then your point is that the president doesn't speak for his own agency. That that, that seems hard to, or the president's spokesman doesn't speak for the, his own agency. It seems wrong. Exactly. And um, and I, I do want to say a little bit about this misinformation because what's happened since then. Can we put that in world, scare quotes? Yeah, exactly. But now they've had uh, this um, this uh, department of misinformation that they're setting up. Oh, the Homeland. Disinformation Governance Board, the DGB. Yes. So, I mean, that wasn't around when we filed our complaint. It's around now, but it sure strikes me as as intimidating. Um, everyone sa- says um, everyone says, "Well, well, they haven't really said what they're going to do." Well, when you set up a disinformation board. Um, it's not something that free people are are going to say, huh, oh, good. I'm sure the government that's done so well with baby formula and everyone else is going gonna, is gonna to do real f- well on disinformation. I mean, come on. So, and, and that really brings up, because I really think that our plaintiffs in this case have been very brave and very accurate. Um, one of the things that they've, they've 
said, particularly uh, the name plane of Shingizi, but all of them. From the very beginning, they said, let's take the science into account. Let's look at other pandemics. Let's look at respiratory transmission, all that stuff. So our plaintiffs are not people. I want the listener to know this. They're not saying that, you know, Bill Gates is trying to control you with nanobots through the vaccines. One of the things that I've said on another program, which I think is very, very, very important here, is that there is no medical treatment in the history of the world that doesn't have reported side effects effects. There's none of them. And in fact, the FDA has a law and, and, and we have a law in this country that if you're going to produce a drug for market in, a, in this country, you have to get through the FDA and then whatever side effects they find, by law, that has to be on the label. That's why the labels go on so long. And, and for related reasons, that's why at the end of all the drug ads you've ever seen, they have a bunch of side effects. So some of our some of the social media posts were just saying what the side effects were that are on the label of the vaccines. Now, think about that. The government will will uh, come after you if you don't have th that information there and you're selling the drug. They think that information is very important for people to know who are going to take the drug, but they're they're pressuring Twitter and stuff not to tell people what's on the label of the vaccine that they approved. They want it in the fine print and only in the fine print. I mean, it's crazy, Mark. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, that I, is crazy. I, 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 I can't get my head around it because it would be one thing if you were saying, um, oh, I don't know, uh, if you were a major singer and you said that uh, people's genitals were being affected by this, and that's not on the label. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is actual things that can happen. And... Uh, or, you know, natural immunity. You talk about natural immunity and its relationship to vaccine-inspired uh, immunity. And you compare those two things. Well, I don't like that. It's ridiculous. These are things that people have been discussing for two years now for really good reasons that you would want an open market to discuss these things. And, you know, I think that you should have, be able to say what you want as long as you're not selling something to somebody. You should, you should just go ahead and be able to say what you want. How, how, why the government should have thought, no interest in what you put on the internet. I thought that was called free speech. So did I. Um, but uh, I really think why it's gotten really bad, and I think why it's, it's incensed so many people who would normally go, ah, what do I care what happens, is that true things are now being attacked, true things. And the, the judge, he didn't say any of these things were untrue at all. He did not, I will say this, this order does not say anything bad about any of anything the plaintiff said, and the, and two of them had were before him, and he didn't attack their credibility or anything like that. So, I mean, I thought that was a that was in mercy um, because he said, "Look, I, they don't know why they're thrown off." Really, is what he said because they don't, they can't have that information because they're just on the the internet and they haven't talked to Twitter or Facebook or any of these people. Um, but. You know, I think that when you have a circumstantial case like this and to prove causation, you have to have um, you, the timeline and when things happen. And I think the timeline here, these people are permanently being thrown off after this full court press by the government. I think that's that's right. They weren't, they weren't chilled in their speech before right. January 20th of 2021. It was only things that were said by the federal government after January 20th, 2021. That led them to be chilled in their speech. And right. by the way, it led and them that to be taken big, off of Twitter. And that you've hit it on the head. This is a big First Amendment thing. They all testified that they'd actually started censoring themselves so they didn't get thrown off 
So I didn't say anything the government really wouldn't like. And they started speaking like Samistat. They started speaking in code, you know, about things so that it wouldn't show up in a search engine. But again, he said, well, that's we don't know that's the government. That could just be them doing it themselves. And um, so he, he found no state action. Uh, even on this complaint, he said, nah, I'm, I'm going to say more is needed. Um, private action that is predicated on some rule of decision for which the state is responsible, generally enough to satisfy the state compulsion. But he didn't find that. He said private action, you know, if they're doing this on their own, I think it's fine. And I don't see any reason to believe they're not doing it on their own. So we hope to go back to the well on this one. But it is a loss we have to report. And I and I do think it's important. It's bad for the government to be stopping true statements that appear on your computer. And there's no reason for it. And we will continue. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.